0: it's uh, awesome to be with you guys this morning hey um, just something we were praying for you this morning as uh, your pastors gather and and pray um, on Sunday mornings one of one of one of our prayers for you this morning is that summertime would not be a time for you to lose the flavor of the kingdom it is easy to get into summertime mentality and I think sometimes it's easy to begin to let our guard down and and one of the beautiful things you're known for in this community, and it's just beautiful about being with Three Rivers Community Church, is you have the flavor of the kingdom, you have the aroma of the rule of Jesus Christ, and uh, don't let summer rob you of that. Whatever, whatever word that, however that needs to land on your heart, I just trust that the Spirit wants to use that to uh, to to bless you, and uh, don't lose the aroma of the kingdom because you're on break. All right. Kingdom's never on break. The kingdom's always advancing and growing, and and um, as as the the leaven works in dough, the Lord Jesus said, "So is the kingdom always working, always leavening." And so the kingdom is never ever asleep. Don't sleep on the kingdom. Okay, all right. Are you lost. You like? I wish you'd shut up. Don't know why I came this morning. You're here. Let me pray for you, Father, in the name of Jesus, for your glory and our joy. We ask that you would rule over your people now well, and uh, almost sounds like a dumb prayer to pray, uh, because you rule well and you never stop ruling well. We ask that you would manifest that in our presence. You're you're well ruling. We would taste it, feel it, enjoy it. So, Holy Spirit, we bow the knee. We say we are yours. And, King, we ask you to rule among us powerfully. Teach, instruct, guide us into truth. Counsel us in all the ways we need counseling. Um, Reveal, open our hearts and uh, do work in us um, to take us another another way uh, in our sanctification. So help us now uh, to make sense of your word. Counsel us in the truth. Guard us from lies. And we pray that all these things you would receive great glory and our joy in you. We pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6. We're wrapping up the book of Ephesians. Just a couple more weeks and we'll be done. And there'll be time to move on. Today we're taking a look at Ephesians 6.17. And the, the continuing theme from chapter 4 on is walking worthy in the gospel. And today verse 17 introduces how we walk worthy in the gospel Through putting on more armor. And the armor we look at today is the armor of salvation and the armor of the word. The armor of salvation, the armor of the word. been looking at spiritual warfare for a few weeks. Because this is how Paul wraps up the book. And so if you've missed that and you're not sure what all we've covered to this point, go a few weeks back. You can listen to this stuff on the interwebs and get yourself caught up. We are in a real war. We're in a real spiritual struggle. Otherwise the Bible wouldn't address it. And so don't be caught unaware, don't be caught with your armor off, know how to put it on, know what it is. As we said before, we're not making much out of the metaphors, often these passages get taught, and the metaphors are made more of than they're intended, and we're not making much of the metaphors, I'm not even using the metaphors, we're focusing on the armor. And so the armor is not a helmet, the armor is salvation. So I'm going to be mentioning helmet. You can go look at the helmet, but the helmet of salvation is not to guard the head, thus your brain. That is missing the point. We're focusing on the armor, not the metaphor, so that we don't miss the point. And today we're looking at this last two pieces of armor, which is salvation and the Word. Salvation and the Word. Um, I I read an article this week on a, a, a news site about a celebrity type person who is converting from christianity to judaism going backward which means they never were in the faith that's my commentary for you there you don't walk away from jesus after having been in jesus that doesn't happen read hebrews carefully you're in christ you remain in christ because jesus doesn't lose what the father's given him The Father has given me a people. John 10. And all those the Father gives me will come. This is why we're good Calvinists. This is summer. I can speak plainly. And I'm not a faculty member at Unity Christian School anymore. We're Calvinists. We believe in the sovereign election of God. We believe in the providential sovereign election of God. It's in the Bible. Oh, that felt good. Like something just healed in me. I don't have to play politics anymore. That's awesome. All five points. Glory. Because they're biblical. If you have a problem with those, you have a problem with your Bible. Jesus said, All those the Father has given to me, has, past, perfect tense verb, completed in the past, completed in the past, done, sealed, finished, completed, they will come to me, in other words, the grace of God is irresistible when the gospel falls on one of those the fathers given the son they come because they don't have an option. <sighs> oh, that felt so good. This is why the great commission will never abort. This is the boldness we have in preaching the gospel to the nations is because Genesis 12, all right? God promised Abraham a people from all nations. And He will fulfill His promise to Abraham through Jesus to make God a people from all nations. This is why we go boldly and preach the gospel boldly because those who've been given to the Son will hear. They will come and He holds them, John 10, and they will never be lost. This is our confidence we have as followers of Jesus that we don't walk away from Jesus. That was a rabbit's trail. So, this person was never in the faith, but, and I'll tell you why in a moment. They converted from Christianity to Judaism, and they were quoted as saying that they believed the Old Testament, but that all the stories are not intended to be taken as actual history or factual. They liked the opportunity those stories afford them to believe and exercise faith. In other words, the Old Testament's full of myths intended to help them just believe and have faith. And, and that sounds all beautiful, right? Until you ask the question, well, what is the object of your belief? What is the object of your faith, right? But you've got to understand, faith has an object. Belief has an object. You don't believe in belief. You don't have faith in faith. That's new agey, cosmic humanist type junk. Faith has to have an object. You are all exercising faith right now. Do you know what the object of your faith is? A chair. All faith has an object. You are firmly planted on a chair. And you're trusting the physics and the mathematical calculations done by people smarter than us or some of us. And you're trusting your faith right now has an object. Biblical faith has an object. And it's not just to have faith so that you can get over some of life's hardships by just believing. This is some of the junk that gets injected into American Christianity where faith is sort of what we worship, not Jesus who gives faith. We just have faith. Have faith. Faith will get you whatever you need. No, it won't. No, it won't. We don't have faith in faith. We don't have belief in belief. So this person's idea is the Old Testament's a story full of myths that help them to just believe. Right? You see, the problem is there's no salvation in that. That's cold. That's dead. If that's the case, then atheists are really on to something. Because if there's nothing out there to have my face, my object of my faith, if it's not resting in something. I just, I'm just i just exercising faith in nothing. And, and if I don't have faith in... If My faith is in nothing. Then what is it in? It's, then it's in me. It's it's in what is it in? It's these are too many questions. Atheists have a better answer than that, right? You see, without a robust doctrine of the scriptures, there's nothing one can hang their hat on regarding salvation or even the need for salvation, right? If I don't have a robust doctrine of the scriptures, who am I to say I need saving? What tells me I need saving? Right? You see, the source of one's truth is vital in determining one's framework for understanding who they are. If we toss the reality of the content of the Old Testament and the New Testament away for objectless faith, then we really don't believe we're in need of saving. And thus... We think we're good, basically good, and faith is just there to help us get over some life's challenges and I can believe enough in myself or just believe and this magical thing happens and a little sparklies over me and it just sort of transports me through them. The armor of salvation, the armor of the Word of God go hand in hand. And we've seen this about these pieces of armor. They go hand in hand. The Word tells us we need saving, right? You see what I mean? When you have a robust doctrine of the word, you got to walk away going, huh, I need saving. I need rescue. Because there's this problem in the garden called the fall. And I was broken and I was at war with God and sin is crouching at my door and its desire is to master me. So you, can, you can't even get out of chapter three of the book before you realize I need fixing. So when you have a robust doctrine of the word, you recognize, well, oh, geez, I'm in, I'm in need of saving, right? The word tells us we need saving. So if we have no reliable bedrock source of truth, then our need of being rescued gets called into question, which is exactly why you can just go between Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, and just whichever. Just pick the one that makes you happiest. Can't do that if you wield the sword of the Spirit. Remember, all the way back to the beginning of spiritual war and these pieces of armor, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 15 through 20 reminds us that this armor isn't something Paul's just making up. Paul's just not pulling things out of the air. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's coming from Isaiah 59, 15 to 20, in which this armor that has been supplied to us is the Messiah's armor, God's armor. The armor that the Messiah himself takes on to wage war and establish his kingdom. Which helps us to understand there's great confidence in the fact that when Paul says we have this armor that's been supplied by God and it's all the armor. He hasn't left anything out. It's everything we need put on through prayer. So we have God's armor supplied to us by grace through Jesus Christ put on in prayer and this gives us great confidence in the fact that this is the Lord's armor and this is the armor He's made available to us. And so that protection, redemption, and salvation are the possessions of those He's given them to. So as we look to be armored up, we look to do this with great confidence that this armor is God's armor, it's made available. It's fail safe, it's a fail safe guard, and it's a fail safe guard against the enemies of the gospel. So let's take a look at these final two pieces of armor that were put on through prayer and our abiding in Christ. Let me go back and kind of, let me just go read. Like, Paul writes long sentences. Very long, so it's hard to just go back when your translation is kind of literal grammatically. You kind of keep going back and looking for where the sentence starts over. And you just keep going back, make sure you know you're in the last chapter. You know, it's like, oh, where do I start? So you just pop back up to verse 13, and we'll read uh, down through, heck, verse 20. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Praying at all times in the Spirit. That continuation of that sentence, not starting a new sentence in verse 18, the praying being the participle defining how you put on the armor, which if you're wondering, why do we say put it on praying because that. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We'll hit that next week. And also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Verse 17 tells us here that we are to put on salvation and the Word as our final two pieces of armor. Number one, salvation. A little quote here from D.A. Carson. To put on the helmet of salvation in the context of this letter, and this is in the context of Ephesians, this is where sometimes we, we lose our minds, Bible teachers, and teaching this passage, and we make too much of the metaphor, and we draw it outside of its context, and then we make stuff up. By the way, if you ever lead a Bible study, let me just encourage you, you don't have to make anything up. I think one of the things that keeps people from leading Bible studies, and, and hosting radical life groups, is if you feel like you've got you to gotta be like the, the superstar podcast guy, those cats often just make junk up. God already made it up for you. It's in the manual. You don't have to make anything up. I, always, I do this with my, my students in class. I'll be reading a Bible passage, and I'll ask them a question that the next verse answers. And then they look up from the text, and you can see their eyes looking up to whichever side of the brain they're thinking from, and they start making up answers. And it cracks me up. And I say, no, no, look down. Just no, look back down and keep reading. Now, oh, he told us. Like, yeah, it's in the manual. You don't have to make it up. Isn't that awesome? God gave us everything we need. There's nothing lacking here. All right. So context, just let let it speak. Just let it talk. It's complete. Perfect. Lacking nothing, the Bible tells us, right? So, verse 17 tells us, put on the helmet of salvation. So back to Carson. Put on the helmet of salvation. In The context of this letter, this is beautiful, and this ought to liberate you. I hope this gives you great joy. Is to assure our hearts of our union with Christ. That we are already seated with Him and so secure in Him from chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. We hold the strong ground... We are only called to stand, end quote. Listen, to put on salvation is not to get saved daily. That's not what putting on salvation is. It is to realize and understand what Paul has already stated in the letter when we studied this all the way back in September, October, November, January, right? Is the understanding of where we already are in Christ. Remember chapter 1? We have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That's enough, but He goes on. So that we might receive adoption as sons, and God loved us. And then He gave us His Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing, guaranteeing, not, huh, maybe, guaranteeing our inheritance, right? So that's chapter 1. So when he says put on salvation, it's not get saved again. It's not renew. It's not rededicate. It is put on the assurance of what he has already done for you in Christ Jesus. If the armor is salvation, then the temptation is to doubt that salvation and to doubt that call of salvation and to bring it into question and to question The security of our being saved. Does that make sense? If the armor is salvation, then the temptation would be to call into question the validity, security, and established nature of our salvation. To put on salvation is to battle for the assurance of our salvation. Let me just throw this out there. Let me just be... Partisan for a minute. If you toss what the Bible teaches on election to the side, you have no basis for security. What you took up on your own, you can walk away from on your own. By the way, that's Arminianism played out. That's, that, like, that, that, that's, that is the tenet of Arminianism. And people foolishly called Calvinist Arminians. There are no Arminians in this room, very few in this town. Because that position holds that you took up on your own God's offer to you, and you can and will walk away from it if you don't stay on your own. Just be honest, if that's what that is, I'm out. Because I know me better than you know me, and I will quit on you if God doesn't sustain me. Does that make sense? And if you will be honest with yourself, you'll quit on me and you'll quit on God if He doesn't sustain you. Right? So let's just, let's just be honest here. Right? I'm battling for the assurance that what He has done for me will stand in the evil day. Isn't that what He said? And having done all, you just stand. Right? And so we're battling for the assurance that what God has done for me in Christ is going to stand. That when I even can't answer the questions, when I don't have an answer for the questions, that He's got me. You know? And if you've lived in an ivory tower, chances are you have no questions. Right? But if you've been raised outside the tower, you've got questions, you ought to have questions. And some of them are hard to answer. And so having done all, we stand, with feet firmly planted on the grace of God, we stand, trusting that He can sustain that which He has entrusted to me until that day. So what we're battling for is the assurance that what He has said He will do. All those the Father gives me will come to me and I will lose none of them. I'm battling for the assurance, Jesus, you still got me? Because sometimes it doesn't feel like he's got me, right? Thank you. Sometimes it feels like, Jesus, where are you? And what we're battling for is the assurance that he is near. One of the greatest lies of the evil one is that God's distant. God is never distant. One of the dumbest prayers you can pray is, Lord, come near. He never went away. The Bible's clear. Holy Spirit dwells in you. He's here. It doesn't get any nearer than that. Right? And so, rest assured, the armor isn't get saved every day. The armor is fight for the assurance that what God says is true is true. That when He feels a million miles away, He's actually right here. And there's a war going on causing you to disconnect everything and start believing lies. One of the prayers I pray for my boys nightly is that you would guard them, Lord, from lies and keep them in the truth. Because we've learned part of this spiritual battle is prophets preaching lies. And sometimes those prophets are physical. Sometimes they're in your head. Sometimes they're the lies of the world. Sometimes they're just demonic, whispering in your ear. And Paul tells the church at Ephesus, he tells us, put on salvation. Put on what I've told you already. In the first three, four chapters, put on the assurance of the strong ground you stand on. Perhaps one of the most fiery and devastating arrows the adversary shoots at us is the arrow of doubting our position in Christ and making our position in Christ something we earn rather than something we are given by grace. If the evil one can get you thinking... You have to earn the favor of God. You have lost the battle. Listen, not only, this, not only does the Bible teach us because of God's salvation for us, that God loves us, it's deeper than that. How does it get deeper than that? He actually likes you. And all of your quirkiness, and you think you're not quirky? <laughs> we all quirky. Not only does he love you, he likes you. And if Satan can shoot the arrow into your soul that causes you to think God's just tolerating you, and he only likes you, and he loves you because he has to, you've bought the lie. The Bible teaches us the doctrine of adoption so that we will understand not only does God love me, he likes me. He likes me enough to choose me and make me a son. Lest we forget what Paul said, let's back up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 9, and let's look at the assurance that we have. By the way, if you're studying the Bible, just, just look at the manual. If you're wondering, why did they say that right here? Look back a couple chapters and read it. You go, Oh, there it is. It's just the art of reading. I know we don't do much of that. Art of reading. It's in the manual. Thank you, Dr. Barnett, for that little phrase. Missiology professor, Southwestern Seminary. Some of you guys who took perspectives a few years ago, we had we got to have Dr. Barnett here. Some of you guys got to meet Dr. Barnett, and he's actually rebound his Bible. It's got the manual written on it. I love it. When mine wears out, I'm going to get the manual. It's in the manual. Let's let's look back into the manual, what Paul's written. Ephesians 2, 4 9, and let's see what he said about our salvation. But God. Now, this is crazy. Now, if He's raised me and seated me with Him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages, you think there's any doubt on whether or not I'm going to be in Him in the coming ages? You tracking? The the, the assumption is from chapter one because you've been elected in Him, and He's put His Holy Spirit in you, and you've been raised and seated with Him, it's so that in those coming ages, which you are sure to be in because you're in Christ, He doesn't lose those who are His. It's in the manual. It's just there. Isn't that beautiful? You already feel the assurance? He's not doubting. He didn't say, if you're there in the coming ages. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. in, And He defines the riches of His grace in kindness. In kindness. Toward us in Christ Jesus. For. Why? Why? How? Why? Here's purpose clause. For. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we've studied this already. But let's do a quick recap. Our salvation begins with God's love, not man's effort. You're saved because God loved you before you were lovable. What does he say? but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. God's salvation begins in His love, not your effort to be cleaned up. So God's love of you and your salvation isn't contingent on you being clean. It's not contingent on you doing good enough. It is very simply on God's love, period. Second, our salvation comes from God's mercy, not man's ability. Because God is rich in mercy and the great love with which He loved us, our salvation comes from God's mercy, not man's ability. It's not even your ability. It's not God looking and go, Boy, that, that cat right there has got some, got some ability. As a matter of fact, we're taught in the Bible, God chooses the weak things to despise the strong, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go back to the Old Testament. Who did God pick over Jesse and Jesse's family? The oldest? The tallest? No, the one that, by the way, David's father, the Hebrew is, he's the worthless one, so that's why I have him out there with the sheep. Jesse didn't consider David worthy enough to even bring in and line up for Samuel to look at. Who did God pick to be king? the one man thought was worthless. And God said, I don't look as you look. I look at the heart, not the stature. So God doesn't look at your ability. It's based completely on His mercy. Third, our salvation comes in spite of our being dead and not spiritually seeking. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. His love and mercy... Given even when we're not able and while we're spiritually dead. Fourth, our salvation comes because God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9 is constructed on the promise of Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't read and you don't know how to make the grammatical connection between chapters in a book, you're lost. But 2, 1 to 9 is connected to one. Does that make sense? That's why 2, 1 to 9 follows chapter 1, right? He put that paragraph in after he laid the foundation of why he's going to put it, right? And when you're writing an essay, I have to teach, I don't anymore, but teach students to write an essay, right? What's that introductory paragraph do? You tell them what you're going to tell them. You lay, you lay the foundation work and then your body is composed of paragraphs that unpack in detail the point. And then you write the conclusion that sums up what you said. Right here. God's done this work. As a result, it's by grace, through faith. It's by mercy, by love. Not your ability, not your effort. That make sense? Right? You don't turn off your brain when reading your Bible. You keep it engaged. You ask the questions. Why is this here? Well, let's look back and see why he wrote it. Right? Fifth, our salvation comes because we've been made alive with Christ. Verse five. He made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. He made us alive. I was dead. He made me alive. So my salvation is predicated not on me being a dead guy raising myself to life, but on God taking dead people and raising them to life. Six, F. There are letters in my, on my notes. Sorry. F. Number six, our salvation comes because of grace. By the way, these are just coming out of Ephesians 2, 4 to 9. Our salvation comes because of God's grace. That's God's kindness and unmerited favor. I'm saved because God is kind. Number seven, our salvation comes because God raised us up with Christ. Verse six, he raised us up and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This is why D.A. Carson said we have the strong ground, we have the high ground. We're looking for assurance not to be saved again. We have the high ground of being in Christ. Remember all the way back to September when we started studying Ephesians, this theme of being in Christ, and the number of times, 33 plus times, Paul used that phrase in Christ in the book of Ephesians. We've been seated in Christ. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. And so our salvation comes because God has raised us up with Christ. Our salvation comes because... God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. This is why Paul will tell the Ephesians here that we just need to stand is because we are with Christ in the heavenly places and because Christ rules those heavenly places where these principalities and powers are and we're in Him and we're with Him, we just have to stand. Because the one who wins the battle is the one we are in. Therefore, we put on His armor and stand in Him. No effort of our own. We are in Him. And the strength of the armor comes from the one who we are in. By the way, you ought to feel your confidence rising. You ought to be feeling inside of you like, Dadgum, I'm saved. I think I, I'm alright. That's the point. Our salvation comes in order for God to show us the immeasurable riches this we 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 heard this this morning in our in our men's group conquer series, which you're gonna hear more from me about that in the not too distant future. Your view of God affects everything, and if you have falsely superimposed onto the Father this mean, judgmental coming after you, seeking to get even with you lie, then verse seven makes no sense to you. Did you catch verse seven? So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Listen, our salvation comes so that God might be kind to us, not get even. Listen, guys, when bad things happen, it's not God getting even for that thing you did last summer. Jesus took all that punishment at the cross. Now God's good enough to not let us go and He'll pursue and break our sin because He loves us. There's a difference between fatherly discipline and the fruit of sin that we have planted in the ground. But God is never anything but kind to His people. He saved you so He could be kind to you. Not properly judgmental because you're not in Christ. By the way, God will judge He judged you in Christ. Jesus took your punishment. But if you do not repent and believe the gospel, you will find the judgment of God in hell. But in Christ, you get nothing but His kindness. Our salvation comes by grace through faith as a gift of God, not our works. Paul put, it was so clear, right, in Ephesians 2. It is by grace you're saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? So that you can't boast. If it were the result of me doing something, anything at all, if there were any merit in any decision I made, I could stand before God and say, you owe me that. Because I conjured up enough faith, and you just finished the task. Give me what's mine. And Paul says, lest you miss the point. Faith is God's gift to you. So that you can't come before God and say you earned it. My salvation comes as a gift of God's grace. And finally, verse 9. Our salvation is such that we can never brag we did anything. You see, the armor of our salvation is the assurance that what Father said He would do in Christ, He has done completely. Listen, guys. The armor you need to put on through prayer today is the trust that what the Lord said He would do, He's done in Christ. And you stand today in the presence of God, not by your merit, but by His grace, and you are His. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering, that is the cross, He has perfected for all time, perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. If you're in Christ and you're being cleaned up, He's perfected you. And by the way, this is why Paul can say in Philippians 1, six, He who began a good work will complete it. Why? Because He's perfected those of you who are being sanctified. Your completion in Christ is fixed. That's good news, by the way. There's, there's a lot of reasons why the Bible calls this message good news. That's just one of them. Note, however, that this assurance of our salvation is built on what is written, not our feelings on the matter. Notice we're appealing to what is written, not how we feel on the matter. If we appeal to our feelings on the matter, it just depends on the day, right? depends on the circumstances, because so often we are circumstantially ripped around by how we feel. We are appealing to what is written on the matter. Therefore, we have to have an unbreakable dependence on the Word of God that we are assured tells us what is right and true so that our assurance can stand. Which leads us to this last piece of armor, and that is the Word. The Word. Do you feel a little emboldened that you are Christ's? Praise the Lord. If not... You go back and listen to that again, or read it, do something. By the way, if, if doctrinally you just got challenged, it's okay. Believe what's in the manual. You believe what's in the text, you will find your assurance growing. You disregard what's in the text, you will find sand to stand on that will shift. It's in the manual. And it is the basis of my assurance in here. So we stand on the Word. Number two, the scripture, the Scriptures are a ballast. You guys know what a ballast is? It's weight in the bottom of a ship. keeps from turning over in rough seas. The Scriptures are a ballast that will keep us upright and steady in the most violent of storms. Only at one's own peril do they jettison the Word of God as their manual in all of life. I don't believe it's a coincidence here that Paul's armor list begins with the narrative of the truth, the noun. You remember that? And ends with the word. That's not coincidence. I wrote a little paragraph I'm not going to spend time with here. But there's, it's a literary device. And it's intended, it's bookended on purpose. So that you can see kind of the point. This armor is sandwiched in between what is true and the content of Or where that truth is found. And that is in the Word. This is why there's a footnote here. I love writing footnotes. Footnotes are beautiful because they're sort of like to the side, they're rabbit trails. You can even rabbit trail in writing, they're called footnotes. It's beautiful. This is why a good systematic theology always starts with the doctrine of the Word of God. Otherwise, the entire content of that systematic theology can be called into question because the basis for determining what the whole Bible teaches on any given subject isn't intact. So if you don't like Grudem and you're picking another systematic theology, make sure it starts with the Word of God. If it doesn't, his presupposition is that the Word comes down the line. You start with... Because if systematic theology is defined as a study of what the whole Bible teaches on any given subject, and that's the good working definition, then you need to start with, is this thing right? Is it accurate? Does it contain the truth? Because if it doesn't, then what I'm going to say it says is kind of irrelevant, right? You all turned your brain off or you were? Right? If we're saying, this is the manual, and we can call into question its accuracy and dependence, then what it says kind of doesn't matter, right? Because what if that's wrong? So this is why a good systematic is going to start with the doctrine of the Word of God. The idea here is that the truth and the word are the same thing, and this armor is found and unpacked in this truth and put on, as we saw in verse 18, through prayer. John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is now truth. This is why, by the way, we don't believe the Bible contains truth. It is truth. Meaning, there aren't passages that we say, well, that was true then, but we've grown up, and we've evolved culturally, and we don't believe that anymore. That's called liberal Christianity, which I would argue is not Christianity. It is an Americanized version of paganism with a Christian t-shirt on. We don't believe the Bible contains truth. We believe it is truth. The doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture is central to the upholding of truth. If the armor is the Word, okay, remember the armor is the Word. If the armor is the Word, then the temptation may be to disregard the Word for other sources of authority. Make sense? If the armor's the word, then what might the temptation be from the evil one? These principalities and powers to disregard it for another source from which you answer the ultimate questions of who am I? Who are you? What are we here for? Who made us? What's the purpose? Right? For the Christian, the only source of authority is the meta-narrative of the truth applied in the scriptures. It's in the manual. The word truth is noun, not adjective. I'm not going to read. Beat that horse again. If truth, Rajic Tidal, then the word could be said to contain some truth. But truth is a noun. This means the very essence of the word, the Bible, the written words of God is truth. The Bible doesn't contain some truth. The Bible is the very essence of truth. The authors of both the Old and New Testaments claim that what they are writing are inspired and are in fact from God. This makes them either right or crazy or liars. And this is why we claim the doctrine of inerrancy, the teaching that the Bible doesn't contain anything contrary to fact. We believe that the Scripture is not only inspired, but that it accurately communicates God's instruction to His creatures about who He is, who we are what His purpose is, why things are as they are, what our role is, why things are as they are now, and how He will complete His mission in the future, and on and on and on. And they've been accurately transmitted from the originals to copies so often that it can be documented bibliographically and archaeologically. What I want to give you now, for the next couple of minutes, is a shortened version of my class on biblical reliability. I have an hour and a half version of this. And I've got roughly ten minutes. I can give you the larger class some other time. Because Satan's first attack in the garden to Eve was... Did God say that lie hasn't stopped? Did God really say that? I mean... Aren't those just man's words? And didn't they just say God said it? Because after all, they're power hungry, right? And men are power hungry. So what they did was they wrote it down and said it was God's word so that other people would just do what they said and give them money, right? No. Thank you, Ms. Georgia. No. <laughs> Satan's first attack in the garden was, did God say? So we want to remove the lie's potency with some facts. I don't even know how to do this in 10 minutes. Thank you, Dub. Coming from a college professor. I love it. First of all, it's the transmission process. This process of copying from the originals. There are no originals found, except I gave you that link last week, and then two weeks ago I shared with you the new data that we now have a fragment of the Gospel of Mark from the first century, first one found, putting Mark at least at 8080. That's when that copy was. And if, if we're into the first century at eighty eighty, then that's a copy, meaning the original has to get pre-80-70, meaning that the original was written within 10 years of the life of Jesus, which is massive. That's freaking huge, ginormous. So, this process of copying from the originals is a process called transmission process. And the method was they take the original... And they make the copy, and they make another copy, and they make another copy. The process is word to word, line to line, and letter count per line and per page. And if the letter count per line and page is off, then it's scrapped and they start over. And that's not insignificant because it's not like they could go down to CVS and buy a pack of 200 sheets of college-ruled notebook paper for 50 cents. We're talking leather and papyrus, which was very expensive. And so they had to be accurate because it was expensive. We're talking about a scribal heritage of copying. By the way, How the Irish Saved Civilization is a book you need to read. Not a Christian book, but it is a a sketch historically of how Patrick's men and followers of Jesus Christ copied the Scriptures in order to preserve them from the Vikings burning everything to the ground and how Western civilization is preserved because Patrick's men in Ireland did this preservative work. And by the way, you're about to see some bibliographical and archaeological evidence that not only did they do it, they did it right. How the Irish saved civilization. Homework. Go get it. Amazon 299. If you don't read it, you're not a Christian. Just kidding. You need to read things by non-Christians that validate what we know to be true. Because one thing for us is make stuff up. It's another thing when it's bibliographically and archaeologically factual. Make sense? That's called academia, scholarship, right? So, it had to be good. So, let's start with the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you one quick, two well, two quick things. Dead Sea Scrolls, 1947. If you don't know the story, little boys play in 1947, throws rocks into a cave. Because it's fun to throw rocks in caves. They make sounds. And what he heard was a different sound because what he heard was a rock breaking clay jars. Crawled down in there, found the scrolls, showed his dad. Dad called the authorities. What they discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, It was a copy of Isaiah. Among many, 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 many other documents, it took us a thousand years closer to the original. And they proved to be word for word identical with the Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. And the 5% of variation consisted of slips of the pen and variations in spelling. That's fact. Ebla tablets Discovered at Telmardik. Modern day Syria, the Ebla tablets, this is cool. This is awesome. Julius Wellhausen, German theologian, and by the way, wonder why I harp on evolution so much, is because evolution isn't just a biological thing, it affected all disciplines, including language and theology. The belief by Julius Wellhausen and many German theologians, which led to the perversion of the Lutheran Church, which is why it was in such a state, so when Bonhoeffer comes along, the Nazi regime, they couldn't stop anything. Because they had sacrificed the authority of the text so much that they just kind of gave in to Hitler's whims. All right? So, Wellhausen's theory is, because evolution is also a linguistic issue, because man was a knuckle-dragging grunter, and language evolved, Moses could not have penned the first five books of the Old Testament because language wasn't complicated enough, and Moses wasn't complicated enough linguistically to be able to do such a thing. So, therefore... The first five books of the Old Testament were written by multiple authors based on the name of God used in each book. That was that was Ben's Southwestern graduate. Some of you guys have been to Southwestern or maybe some other school and studied Bible. This was an accepted theory of how we got the first five books of the Old Testament, the documentary hypothesis. Well, the discovery of the Ebla tablets at Tell Mardikh in modern-day Syria is crazy date a thousand years prior to Moses. And it's a complete library of stone tablets with complex writing and language and grammar. Meaning, Moses was well capable of writing, nay, was raised in the house of Pharaoh, and did write, and thus we have ample belief that Moses not only could have written the first five books of the Old Testament, but did. And if we got writing takes a thousand years prior to Moses with complex grammar, good evidence man wasn't a knuckle-dragging grunter. God's a communicator. He speaks. And Adam, being an intelligent being, is a communicator and speaks. Make sense? Vital. Hittite civilization. Hittites were often used as a tool to throw rocks at Christianity because they were considered to be a mythological people. And they were only talked about in the Bible. And There was no proof of that people. Well, because of archaeology and the study of the land, Hittite civilization was discovered. It was discovered that it was a civilization that lasted 1,200 years. And do you know you can get a doctorate in Hittite studies from the University of Chicago today? Because they existed, and the Bible said they did. You think this thing's trustworthy? Yeah. You bet. That's just the Old Testament. I don't have time to touch the New Testament yet. Because we got to stop. But in your notes, I gave you more than enough information, including a little chart comparing accuracy of the New Testament documents compared to manuscripts and copies of other classical works of history like Caesar, Tacitus, Thucydides, Herodotus, Homer. Having a 700-year gap between copies is considered good. Many of those are over nine hundred. The New Testament we've got over five thousand and by the way, manuscripts of those other works there's ten, twenty eight, eight. there's six hundred and forty three of Homer, New Testament manuscripts fully intact, five thousand plus. Why copy this thing over and over and over again that much compared to the way they copied other documents? Why? Cause he's alive. And we can't let this go. And so copy it. There were 24,000 plus fragments of manuscripts of New Testament writings. Why'd they cut? It's expensive. Again, it's not a pack of notebook paper from CBS. It's expensive papyrus. Why go to the expense of writing this over and over again? And by the way, accuracy in those New Testament manuscripts, 99%. Meaning, not only is it preserved, it's preserved right. And by the way, that's what we... Comparing... Comparing... This is why, this is why we got to study history. Post them. Where are you at? I don't have my glasses. This is why we've got to do history. St. Patrick, this is why we know he copied it accurately because the manuscripts who predate him are right on with what Patrick copied. Meaning, they did this right. You can trust... The manual. Do you feel your confidence rising at all? Put on salvation. He's got you. Take the sword of the Spirit. It's accurate. And wage war. Because not only did God say, He commands we obey. You see, what we know is our armor is sufficient. Father's given us all we need to stand against the schemes of the adversary. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, and the word are completely adequate and powerful to combat the enemy and stand firm on the unifying gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So let's use the armor, let's stand firm, let's not give ground, let's take ground, and let's be a warring and a worshiping people. As I remind you often, Psalm 147, one says, Praise the Lord. For it's good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you that we have the assurance that you have got us and we are your people. Not because of our effort, but because of your grace. And so we take that today. We receive that. And we thank you for the truth of your word that tells us that. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you do supernatural work among us. That you would... Counsel us, guide us, comfort us, help us, instruct us, teach us, grow us. Cause our love for you to increase. Help us to war well against principalities and powers and rulers of spiritual darkness in the heavenly places. and Let us not give ground, but help us to stand and having done all to stand firm. Lord, I pray that you would put in the hearts of your people to sing to you because our confidence is high. Lord, I pray that you would rule our minds. And right now, there would be great joy in the hearts of your people. And that would work its way out into praise. And ask this for your glory and for our joy.